Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I am a poser. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I have read in my ledger. From all my recent home improvements. <laughs> this is Space the Nation, a podcast where we talk about science fiction, non-state actors, and Cold War nostalgia. This week, we are talking about the long-awaited Black Widow standalone vehicle called Black Widow. After that, uh, we will be continuing our streak of MCU commentary because we will be uh, discussing the end of the first season of Loki. And then following that, we will be doing the new queer novel, Victories Greater Than Death by Charlie Jane Anders, including an interview, I believe, with the author. Yep. And following that, Buckaroo Banzai, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. And we've actually pretty much mapped out what we're going to be doing for... Uh, a whole year. A whole year. So, you know, but yeah, we are we always should... ready to take suggestions for other things we can do, including minisodes, because that is what we have done before. Yes. And we especially suggestions for the minisodes, which would be things that we can just talk about, basically, that we talk about anyway, that, yeah. but we're making content because that is the, the directive. The prime directive of culture now is Ooh. that we make content. You know what? Also, if you are interested in this sort of thing, you should become a patron of our show. Why and you should you become do... a patron, Anna? Well, there are many reasons. One is that you can make suggestions for what we're going to do next. You have kind of a direct line to us on the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. There's also other really cool stuff. You get things eventually, but I don't think that's why people would join, Dan. Mm. I think they're there for for the community. And we have a community. We have a Discord community. And ensemble. Where where we regularly mock Dan. (laughs) Wait, what? He doesn't show up, so it's oh. kind of like a... Oh, that okay, yes, <laughs> fine, that's great. <laughs> so if you have some shit to say about Dan, you're going to want to join the Discord, because he'll never see it, because he's just refusing to participate. Or maybe I'm lurking on there, you never know. That is also possible. <laughs> and it's a fun place to be, it's a great little community, and we have occasionally done watch parties, and I think we're going to do some more of those too, like a live chat watch party. We have some thoughts about what we might want to watch. And also AMAs, those. Yes. We do AMAs as well. We do AMAs the first Saturday of every month, so uh, the next one is coming up uh, in August in about three weeks. Dan, why are we talking about this movie? So let's just be blunt. The MCU is the pop culture sci-fi hegemon, which means it cannot be balanced against. It can only be appeased. And also, I would add that that I don't know about you. This was this was the first movie I actually watched on a big screen rather than think, ah, I'll stream it. No big deal. It doesn't make a difference. And it was enjoyable to watch in the theater. Anna, what about you? Yeah, I the last movie I saw in a theater was. I think it might have been the Conjuring movie before the one that's out right now. Ooh, okay. was, and it was last February. Interestingly enough, the last one I saw was the Harley Quinn movie. So, you know, I guess... Can, you you know, like comic book movies in like, theaters. I like comic book movies with female leads, apparently. So, you know, maybe that's <laughs> that's the through line there. But yes, I did see it in a theater as well. Mm-hmm. And it was worth it. Just the experience about being among the people was yes. was, was really cool. Yes. And yeah, you know, MCU, like, it cannot be denied. Right. So we that's, must why engage we're, that's why we're engaging with this it. This is constructive engagement with the MCU. Also, we actually do like a lot of the properties. So, you know, yes. this is it's there is something to be said for competent to great varying, you know, uh, production. And this was, I would think, fell a little more on the competent side than the great side. But we can talk about that. Well, it wasn't bad. Yes, that's, that's for true. Sure. That is very it, true. It was yeah. genuinely not bad. Yes. <laughs> that's actually more than not bad. You're yeah. right. Do we want to talk a little bit about the story behind the story, Dan? Sure. So I, I will start by talking about the sort of MCU writ large, which is, it would be safe to say that the MCU has come a long way, baby, uh, when it comes to its treatment of female characters. If you go back and watch the original Iron Man, for example, there is a character trope that I'm sure brings out the rage in Anna, which is the sexy reporter who wants winds up sleeping with the source. And indeed, even the introduction of Black Widow in Iron Man 2, it would be safe to say that that Scarlett Johansson was treated somewhat as more of a, a sex object, as it were, you know, and then her character has obviously grown a fair amount uh, over the years. And I would actually argue that one of the better satires of the MCU was a Saturday Night Live skit that came out in 2015 
that suggested what Marvel would do if they actually did make a standalone Black Widow movie, which was essentially Black Widow meets Devil Wears Prada in some sense. <laughs> um, and if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it because it is legitimately funny. And Scarlett, it was when Scarlett Johansson was hosting uh, SNL, so she participates willingly and it's, it's extremely well done. But obviously the MCU has expanded and matured in a number of different ways and they've already had two superhero movies with female leads in the title at least. And so this was the third one. So fans have been calling for this movie for a very long time, and they've waited for a long time. They've waited so long that the character actually died. And this movie, in fact, goes back before Endgame. So mm-hmm. we are we are before seeing Infinity a- War also. Yes, before Infinity War as well. And I just wanted to share a specific backstory mm-hmm. uh, to one of what I thought was one of the best scenes of the movie. Yes, we're in agreement on this. That actually was my favorite single scene in the movie. Right, which is the very explicit talk about hysterectomies, (laughs) which usually isn't played for laughs. Not even an MCU universe, right? (laughs) It is a callback to one of the MCU's most controversial exchanges in the Age of Ultron when Nat and Bruce are kind of tiptoeing around, having a relationship, and he tells her, well, I, I obviously can't have kids, and she says... She can't either. Mm -hmm. She tells him about the so-called graduation ceremony from the Red Room, Mm -hmm. which is a hysterectomy. And the exact quote is, it's one less thing to worry about, one less thing that might matter more than a mission. It makes everything easier, even killing. You still think you're the only monster on the team? Fans saw this with some justification as implying that presenting as a female while not having female parts makes you a monster, which... May or may not have been the intent, although... I think it wasn't the intent, but... Although, the script was written by famous Cancelvania resident, (laughs) Joss Whedon. I do like Cancelvania. I think that's got to make it into the lexicon. That's good. All right. And I also will note that the first draft of the script apparently just had the period joke, which made everybody mad, including the actresses. Oh, God. And the additional dialogue was added by Nicole Holofcener, who is a really wonderful filmmaker. If you're as old as I am, you might remember the movie Walking and Talking. Uh, she's also directed some Orange is the New Black episodes as well as Parks and Rec episodes. So apparently that was her contribution huh. to the movie, uncredited screenwriter contribution, which, yes, does make the whole movie in a way. No, no, I, I remember when he said that, I'm like, really? Like, that That was like, like the horriest joke. I couldn't believe that that was in there. And then, as you say... I'm going to just say this right now. The best thing in this movie is Florence Pugh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who plays Natasha's younger sister, Yelena, sort of quasi-younger sister, I guess. But, like, as you say, I didn't think it was possible to make a joke out of having a hysterectomy. And, like, she somehow nailed the tone of that answer so perfectly that it was wonderful it's when you lean into stuff like that's one one way to do comedy right is you lean in hard and she if you haven't seen the movie it's an uncomfortable little bit of comedy because she leans in but it is comedy it is comedy i also will note that this is a completely different origin story than the comics Hmm. this is just a they have just done something entirely different including with red guardian this is just this is cinematic universe not mu universe Mm -hmm. But all that said, Dan, would you like to review the plot for us? Sure. So let's start with Act 1, The Americans 2. So we are in Ohio in 1995. We see little Natasha Romanoff and her even little sister, Yelena, enjoying being middle-class kids in middle America. Their quote-unquote father, Alexei, comes home and tells their quote-unquote mother, Melina, that he's done the spy deed thing and stolen a floppy disk that is apparently super important and then torched the lab in which he stole it in, so they need to bug out. They barely escape lots of S.H.I.E.L.D. sort of SUVs trying to to kill them and manage to get on a prop plane on their way to Cuba, where they are welcomed by the big bad villain in this movie, uh, a gentleman named Drakov, played by Ray Winstone. The family is disbanded at this point. The girls go back to the Red Room. Alexei is imprisoned for reasons that frankly remain unclear to me, and Melina goes back to working for Drakov. Fast forward 21 years. So we are now in the MCU timeline. Natasha is on the run from the events in Captain America Civil War, where even though initially siding with Tony Stark, in the end, she does help Captain America and as a result has to go on the lam. She also has yet to dye her hair blonde, which is what you can see her look like in Avengers Infinity War. She is holding up in Norway uh, in a redoubt with her fixer who is setting her up with, you know, nice like 
RVs and, and what have you. Well, not nice RV. Uh, actually, that's one of the sort of adequate RVs of that actually An adequate RV, which should have had needed more fuel. Yes, Yelena mm-hmm. is still working apparently for Drakov and tasked with killing a rogue widow. During their fight, however, she is exposed to red dust, which allows her to reacquire <laughs> her free will. Uh, <laughs> it's sparkly red dust. It's sparkly red know. dust. I'm not kidding when I say red dust. Um, yeah. She feels obviously immediate sorrow for having killed the widow who was trying to help her, but then takes the remaining vials, which could potentially free the will of all the other widows, you know, and sends them to Natasha in the hope that she'll come to her aid. Anna, the opening credit sequence is, is kind of interesting, and I'm trying to figure out if it's an homage or just a blatant ripoff of FX's TV show, The Americans. I have not seen The Americans. I understand um, it's it's good. It's really good, yes. I do think it's enough of a pop culture touchstone that surely the filmmakers have seen yeah, it. Yeah, ha- someone in Marvel had to have known that they were copying. Because it really yeah. does. The, the, if you take a look at the credit sequence to The Americans and the credit sequence for Black Widow, they are very, very similar. Okay. I did love her fixer. I think he just, it's a small thing, but every time he's on screen, like I was like, oh good, we get to see the fixer. He's just very cute and charismatic. Speaking of actors, I also thought the child who played her um, as a preteen Whose was, name is awesome. It's Ever Anderson. Ever Anderson? Yes. Amazing. Yes. And also looks like Scarlett Johansson. I mean, it's uncanny, really. It's the lips. She has those same like perfect heart-shaped lips. Yeah. A comment on the mission. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So if what they were looking for was like a floppy disk or could have been put on a floppy disk, this seems like real overkill. Right. Like a three-year mission where they're also effectively sidelining their most valuable weapon, which is to say the super soldier Red Guardian. Right. So the father, Alexei, also has super strength at this point. We see the super strength on display. He is very annoyed about the fact that he's had to spend three years undercover for this. And you know what? I joined him. Yes. He's totally. That's a a fair (laughs) critique, frankly, of Drakov's allocation of resources. I don't know why you would put someone with super strength in a undercover position where apparently they're supposed to steal something. Right. It does not require super strength. Yeah. And also where he's the one working in the lab, but. Milena, who's supposedly the super scientist, yeah. is the stay-at-home mom. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, I think we're we're in agreement. All that, right, we don't need to we don't need to stay on this, but it is funny to me that like yeah. this just wasn't well thought through I, either by the KGB or you know by the, the MCU. Yeah. No, yeah. I, let me put this way again: the film was legitimately enjoyable, but the plot holes here are in some ways bigger than those of the Tomorrow War, for example. Like there are uh, some serious issues. Yeah. It, I think this is a little bit of what happens when you're doing fan service. Maybe. You know. Sure. We'll talk about that a little more later. And also, I mean, I could say mm-hmm. that since it's a female-led movie, maybe, I don't know, they didn't put as much care and attention into <gasps> it. I don't know. Oh, I'm not going there. No, no, this is a trap, and I am not going to comment on this. All right. Moving on. Okay. Act two, Daddy Issues. Natasha wants nothing to do with anything sent from her Budapest safe house and is about to literally throw it all away when she is attacked by Taskmaster, someone who is capable of mimicking other people's fighting skills and does not display much personality beyond that fact. Natasha barely escapes but now realizes that the vials that were in the Budapest stuff are important and she needs to return to Budapest and meet up with her younger quote-unquote sister, Yelena. Natasha arrives and fights cute with Yelena. It's actually one of the best sequences in the movie uh, in which they fight. They are then attacked by the widows and Taskmaster, barely escaping. Yelena informs Natasha that she did not kill Drakov, as Natasha had previously thought, and that Drakov is still running the Red Room, now with chemical conditioning as opposed to the psychological conditioning that Natasha had endured. Natasha and Yelena do some sister spy bonding and decide the best way to defeat Drakov is to free Alexei from a Russian prison. They do this, but Alexei actually tells them that Melina is the one still working for Drakov. They wend their way to St. Petersburg. Anna, I'm a bit confused by the continuity suggested in this film compared to the larger MCU. Uh, Alexei... <laughs> As already discussed. Yes. Is, mm. <laughs> but Alexei, a.k.a. the Red Guardian, says multiple times that he is convinced that Captain America is his arch-rival, but there is no way they ever fought each other because as far as we are aware, and indeed, they, again, they say so in the film, Captain America was on ice up until 2011 and he was in prison after that. So I, I saw two solutions okay. to this particular quandary. One is that he's either delusional or bragging, like just talking out of his ass. Right. 
there is a fan theory that does the work that Marvel didn't. (laughs) (laughs) That he fought one of the Captain America stand-ins that the government occasionally brought out from time to time to make people think that Steve wasn't on ice. Or... This is my favorite. Okay. He fought Steve in the timeline introduced in Endgame. That, I think, is the most plausible one. Because, like, first of all, like, literally a Russian prisoner says that Captain America was on ice until 2011. So that seems to have been common knowledge, just generally. And I also don't think that that he was just talking out of his ass because he asked Natasha this directly. And and that's not something you would have done if you were talking just out of your ass. And I will, <laughs> I guess I'll also point out this can't be that he fought Captain America in that timeline because he's not on that timeline. Mm -hmm. Everyone else with him is in the timeline where Steve went on ice. Right. So that's a really bad fan theory, basically. I actually, I I just went with, I think he's bragging. Like, I just think he's talking out of his ass. That was my... I I, I will accept that he's been in prison so long that maybe he now believes his own bullshit. That is an entire possibility. But this also raises another question, which is, I don't know why he was imprisoned in the first place. They they never say. They don't. They literally never say. Like he, uh, he, he and says, also yeah. he's a, he is a super soldier, right? And so why is he just in a regular kind of? I mean, it looks like a pretty standard prison yeah. that he breaks out of with ease, right? Exactly. Although it's in Siberia or something, so I guess the idea is that where would he go he, once he? Where would he go? But he's still a super soldier, so it's a little he weird. Could have, like run or something. Yeah. Like I don't know. Anyway. Also, he brags about being the Soviet Union's first and only super soldier, which I thought couldn't be right, because what about winter soldiers? Right. They are, in the MCU, officially Hydra, not Soviet Union soldiers. I guess. Although, you know, I mean, literally, when we first see the winter soldier, he's got the Soviet star on the arm. So, like... This, I don't know what to tell you. I... Except... This is, this is hair splitting. <laughs> I know but, yeah. Wikipedia would never lead me wrong. <laughs> Um, and also I did not just look on Wikipedia I looked on the official Marvel site the Marvelpedia ah okay so that's that I will point out sort of uncomfortably Mm -hmm. that uh, the Red Guardian in the comics is Natasha's husband that is disturbing on a whole number of levels given what we've seen in the movies so yeah I'm glad they deviated from that fair enough okay so act three Act three, dysfunctional family reunions. Natasha, Yelena, and Alexei arrive at Melina's place where she is experimenting with getting pigs to follow her every command, including <laughs> not breathing. Not uh, just experimenting. She seems to have just, just succeeded. I don't know yeah. what she's doing because she's just like, she's got it. That like, was, by know. the way, easily the most uncomfortable scene in the entire movie. Oh my God, yes. She's, like, there, she's basically making the pig not breathe and you're like, oh my God, is that pig going to die? I don't want the pig to die. And, yeah. and I will say that, so everyone waits for the credits anyway, mm-hmm. but I was, this particular scrolling of credits, waiting for the thing at the end where it says the no Humane Society is yeah. certified. <laughs> no pigs were harmed in the making yes. this movie. <laughs> so This leads to, you know, the family dinner table scene in which Natasha gets some feelings off her chest about her fake mom and fake dad, you know, and Yelena gets some feelings off her chest as well, and Melina and Alexei kind of apologize sort of half-assedly. Melina tells Natasha that she has already alerted Drakov and that the widows are coming. Alexei barely fits into his old Red Guardian uniform. The whole spy family is taken to the new Red Room, which is now apparently like a permanent sort of Soviet-style helicarrier or something. It's like a floating palace or whatever. They are going to operate on Yelena to discover how the red dust works and uh, bring Natasha back into the Widow's program. Natasha learns the identity of Taskmaster. Oh my god, it's Drakov's daughter. The very same person that actually Loki mentions in the original Avengers movie when Black Widow is actually interrogating him. Uh, right. So fun little fact there. Because that's brought up in the movie, like, like you know, when she presents herself as I'm on the side of, you know, Good. justice now. Yeah, yeah. His, her sister points out, well, what did you have to do to get there? And, the answer- and it is actually, I mean, it's, it's a pretty, pretty hard dunk. Yeah, yeah. Like it's. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. She, she, she uh, I, you know. No, no. I was just about to use that. I would like to report a murder joke, but that would really <laughs> like wouldn't work here. There yes. was an actual murder. Yes. Here, so. And not of Natasha. Anyway. Right. Anyway, this is all a shock because everyone, including Natasha, thought that she had killed the daughter when she defected to S.H.I.E.L.D. Natasha tries to kill Drakov, but apparently Drakov has what is called a pheromone lock that prevents her, because of her past conditioning, from harming him. Drakov then monologues about his master plan and uh, eventually sicks the rest of the widows on Natasha. 
Anna, I, I like to think that I paid a lot of attention to the plot stuff because that's my job during our podcast. I'm still not sure what Drakov's master plan was beyond have a shit ton of widows. I concur. Okay. I was going to say, I think that the fight scenes are really good mm-hmm. in this movie. They, I mean, it's Marvel. Yeah, they always yeah. have really well choreographed fight scenes. And there's a lot of them in this section, and that's good because it distracts you from the plot, <laughs> which is not good in this section yeah. because not only does he not have a plan, it's not even clear what he does with all of the widows that he has, We never, which actually- appear to be thousands. Right. It, this should be stressed. The only time we see the widows in action in this movie is to kill other widows. Yeah, that's it. Literally, we never yeah. see the widows doing like garden variety widow stuff to apparently help. Which would widows. be what? I mean, like, I they're just a, like, they're I, assassins, I guess. But like, this will, will, also, I will talk about this a little bit in the IR th- part. And yeah. and also like, this is another example, I guess, how that Marvel didn't seem to connect it too hard to their universe mm-hmm. <laughs> because. The the MCU, one of the reasons why everyone is so enthralled by it mm-hmm. is because of the Easter eggs yeah. and the connections and all the stuff that they do really work hard right. to like t- do callbacks yeah. to. And one of the things that they do well usually is like plant clues for like future villains, right. let's say, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We have never heard of what the widows are doing. We know Natasha was a widow. Right. But there's no, and we know I about the red room. But like, and we know about the red room. Yeah. But there's no indication that this is an ongoing issue, right? That like, it, and it seems like one of those things that the Avengers would care about, you know, yeah. like thousands of like freelance, not even free. They're not freelance assassins. No. that's the whole thing. <laughs> they're they're like, not. They're, they're under apparently Drake's control. Mind controlled assassins. Yes. and you're right. Like he's not. He's a non-state actor, apparently. Right. Right. He's not working Although, for Russia. Although th- this is this is vague. this is yeah, that's incredibly super vague. vague. Yeah, yeah. So apparently he's just like making a ton of money. But how this can't be a cheap program to do like it, the whole flying fortress thing, which, of course, is like a mirror to the Avengers one. Right. Right. Yeah. That can't be cheap. No. That seems something that either you have to be like a big bad like Hydra. Right. Or a state mm-hmm. to really do like this one guy with thousands of women working for him, you know. I mean, it's very can you imagine strange. Avon having a flying fortress? Like <laughs> Mary Kay. <laughs> Mary Kay, maybe? Mary Kay, I mean, those are pyramid schemes, so who yeah, knows? Yeah, maybe yeah. at the very top. I also want to add that I've always hated the pull-off, the fake face to reveal underneath the real person. Which, That's, which, that is which Natasha's done on multiple cheat. occasions, so yes. Natasha's done on multiple occasions. It's such a cheat. It's like, <laughs> it's a way to solve a, like, it's a way to solve a crisis in the movie that, like, I mean, come on. You know, if it's that easy, then why isn't everyone doing it all the time? Yeah, as I said, this is not the best, this is not the tightest <laughs> plot in the MCU, would be safe to say. I will also point out mm-hmm. that I think it's interesting that it is implied I think in other Black Widow references and in through the other movies, that part of being a Black Widow is being beautiful and maybe seducing, like having some kind of feminine wiles, right. let's say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, given uh, given Yelena and Natasha, that would be entirely believable. And also, like the way we were introduced to to Black Widow is she's got like she's dressed provocatively and she's being interrogated. No, no, no. That, of, well, that's not the first time we see her, but that, that does happen oh, in the Avengers. Right. Yes, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like it's sort of like implied that like they're one of the reasons why the Black Widows are so dangerous is that like they at least disarm you all with of the, being yeah, gorgeous. Because all the Black Widows that we see in this film are extremely conventionally attractive. There's no denying that. So yeah, yeah. I think that's a fair assumption. So it's just interesting to me that that's not even like gestured at, although I'm fine with it. It's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And one more thing to add. Yes. I assume Taskmaster was his daughter for the whole time the one like, thing i did I just, the one thing that was interesting to me was that it, my thing was it's not gonna be a man i kind of knew it was her because like for the politics of the movie yes. in this in this particular right. framework they can't have that villain be a man i will only say i will say two things on this first i knew it had to be her because in the opening credits i know who olga Kurylenko is as an actress like i've seen her in other things and we hadn't seen her throughout the entire film so it, like it was the only logical conclusion but i did like the fact that they had even yelena thinking that it was a it was a guy like it was he taskmaster was always referred to as a he up until the reveal but whatever gender is a construct yes 
Okay, act four. Act four, everything and everyone crashes to Earth. It turns out that Natasha and Melina had anticipated all of Drakov's uh, plans, and therefore Natasha goads Drakov into breaking her nose and severing the olfactory nerve, which, again, if you think about this for even a hot minute, is a really stupid plan, since she could have presumably done that when she was in St. Petersburg with Melina, as opposed to, like, having to do it in a fight. Nonetheless, the nerve is severed. Melina bombs the Red Room. Which also just seems, like, risky. Yeah. Like, breaking your own nose against a desk just seems like... like, It's not very smart. It's not smart. No. Yeah. And, anyway, and also, smart. I guess so. Like that's the it's frustrating in that sense. Yeah. Right. Okay. So anyway. Anyway, Melina bombs the red room engines, uh, which causes it to plummet from the sky. Yelena uses the red dust to free the rest of the widows. Natasha uses Drakov's ring to download all the information about the widow network to free the rest of them. And Drakov and his henchmen die in an exploding helicopter, and everyone else survives with their minds and bodies mostly intact. Natasha sends the rest of her family away and waits for Ross the William Hurt character, to arrive with his posse. Secretary of State, Yeah, Secretary of State, I think. To arrive with his posse to, I think, bargain for their freedom. And then we flash forward two weeks and we see that Natasha now has her blonde hair, has been given a Quinjet by her fixer, and plans to reconnect with Steve Rogers. The after credits... By the way, the Quinjet, I was like, come on. I mean... That's a really good fixer. fixer. That's a very good fixer. That's quite a fixer. If you're going from the broken down RV... Yeah to the Quinjet. Like, again, it is difficult to believe any one person. (laughs) He's got a British accent on it. I mean, I think he can probably get away with a fair amount, is what I'm saying. All right. Okay. Okay. So we then go to credits, and the after-credits scene cuts to post-blip MCU with Yelena tending to Natasha's grave, which is very sad. And then we see Val, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who we also saw in Falcon and Winter Soldier. She shows up, and it's clear Yelena is now working for her. Val decides to give her a new target who she claims killed Natasha, namely Hawkeye. Dun, dun, dun! Dun, 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 dun! All right, so Anna, I have a question about love interests. Now, all of the MCU films that introduce a male superhero, you know, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, all of the first films featuring them have a love interest. What is striking to me is that neither this one nor the Captain Marvel film have London love interest. Now, on the one hand, I kind of get this because it's always a dicey issue when you are introducing a, a female lead because the question always comes, well, where's the romantic lead? And then there's the dangers of rom-com. But still, I do, I'm a little puzzled why, why there is the gender split on this. And I don't know if that's necessarily healthy. I do think it's a reflection of, of modern politics. Okay. Because a lot of these movies, I believe, are straining whether consciously or not to pass the Bechdel test, yeah. which you, yeah, which if, if you're not familiar with it, is having two female characters discuss someone who is not a man. Mm-hmm. And yes, the Marvel movies pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. And this one passes the Bechdel test in spades. There's no problem yeah. with the Bechdel test here. Yeah. And I, I think it may cause some people to, to wonder, like you are, yeah. you know. I think it's the smart thing to do. Mm. I think that the way things are now in our culture, the it is would be difficult to skillfully introduce mm-hmm. a love interest, a should I should say a heterosexual love interest right. yeah. that did not press buttons. <sighs> Yeah, and I will also say... And you can say that's unfortunate, but you know what the thing is? Like, we're working against literally centuries of, right. uh, of programming that, that says otherwise. And I would add, in, in fairness, this is not Natasha's first film. So she already has yeah. had a love interest in the form of Bruce Banner. That didn't turn out terribly well. But, like, they've, they've done that. They've done that with her character. And I understand why they didn't do it with Captain Marvel. It's just, in the best of all possible worlds, I want to, I don't want to see the gender imbalance in that sense. I think it's you, it's entirely something that could be done regardless of the gender of the superhero. I don't think it can be done right now, yeah. actually. I, I honestly don't think... I, I don't think that there is enough of a backstory. I don't know how to, quite how to put it. That, like I said, we're working against centuries of stereotypes here. Yeah. Like where if you're a woman in the movie, you're always the love interest. Yeah. And to just flip that also doesn't quite work. Right. Right? Yeah, no, Which is why, though, I do think you're going to see more queer storylines because that is easier to introduce and not step on the landmines that have been laid, I want to point out again, by centuries worth of culture. This is not something that happened overnight and we can just correct. Right. 
And, and furthermore, it is unfair to expect the MCU to solve this problem because that it's not a problem exactly of their creation. They might have somewhat contributed to it, but like really it's not entirely on them either. And I think they've handled it okay. Yeah. Like I think in terms of Nis- Natasha, like yeah, she does have some love interest, yeah. you know, like in other films. So she's not barred off from that. Although right. I do think that the MCU implies that she's a little fucked up about romance because of her time as a Black Widow. Yeah, which but, is not the worst assumption. To, like, that's totally Oh, fair. and by the yeah. way, what superhero would not be fucked up about romances? Like, yeah. I mean, I think it just, the, the being a superhero to me would make it hard to have, like, a, a very healthy relationship. Agreed. But, yeah. Yeah, to be, and to be fair, like, in the male ones, it's not the romance, like, the romances always go well. They don't necessarily, but at least there is that dimension is all I'm saying, I suppose. I don't want to yell at you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to yell at you. Um, yeah, thank you, Anna. But I just, I, I heard you use, like, that dimension, and I okay. think that that's actually a good word for the wh- why it would be difficult to, to pull off mm-hmm. having a conventional love interest for Natasha. It's because it, when a lead male character has a female love interest that is a dimension of him right that's just one dimension of him yeah yeah when a female character has a love interest that tends to be like that's it that's the that's the dimension as it were that's the dimension yeah no that's fair and so i think and that might not even be the intent of the filmmaker right right it's just the way we read these things because again centuries Mm -hmm. of programming so I think that they're doing something cool here. I also wanted to add that I believe Captain Marvel is queer. There has been talk I have heard about how, let me way, Brie Larson, I believe, is gender fluid, I think. I, I'm not remember. But like she's apparently she and Tessa Thompson want their characters to get together in the MCU. I'm all for it. They're, you know, they deserve each other. Yeah, they're yeah. both kind of kick-ass characters, right. number one. Mm-hmm. And I just think that, also, I think that the tensions of romance can be interesting in any, you know, right. for any character, right? Yeah. So it's cool to add that on there. I think we can probably stop talking about it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so I'm going to change the subject. Okay. Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this film? There's a little IR, but I'm going to be honest, it's pretty bad IR. It, it's sort of simplistic. So first of all, we got to talk about the Widows or Drakov or whatever his organization is. And and here's the thing about transnational criminal organizations. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about transnational criminal entities. Just, You're going to mansplain Black Widows. I, That's fine. Yes, I am in this instance, okay? Um, you are a man explaining I, in this instance. Yes, so. But yes. so... There are transnational criminal entities out there. There are narco traffickers. There are, you know, arms dealers who are, are acting covertly, black marketeers, what have you. The thing about most of them, however, is that in order for them to function and engage in profit, they have to sort of draft the state, as it were. In other words, they they can't just engage in chaos. There is no actual profit in that. Unless they're Hydra. I, yes, but Hydra... Hydra is like a huge exception. Right, right. But And that's because they're just so omnipotent like and also they're just like, portrayed as like they're kind of their own thing right and hydra's interested in order and, and that's yeah, part that's of the right. issue which that's is right. we don't know what drakov actually wants and there's also this was the other weird part about the opening credit sequence because you literally see pictures of drakov with other world leaders does he want political power does he want money there are i actually had a phd student uh rabia zafar who wrote a really interesting dissertation about violent entrepreneurs enterprising extremists which basically suggests that within the context of a state, sometimes violent extremists will pursue a religious angle. Sometimes they will just be acting like criminals, what have you. Maybe that's what Drakov is doing. The problem is, is that it's such an underwritten character and an underwritten plot line that it doesn't really work for me. I keep coming back to the resources you'd need yeah. to carry this off. And it, you can't do it without a state. Like, you just can't. Like, yeah. I mean, the Flying Fortress, apparently infinite amount of faceless soldiers, the training of the widows. And, and I this just brings us to the next criticism. And, and the widows actually. require yeah. upkeep, too, right? Like, Presumably. you know, it's not like you like you pay for an assassin. Someone pays you for an assassination, and then you it's nothing but profit. Like, right. you have to... There's upkeep involved. You gotta train them. There's hair, makeup. You know, I I don't even want to. (laughs) Apparently, like dieting, also. Oh well, yeah. (laughs) Lots of lots of workouts. So speaking of of the state thing, this this also. I bet they're I bet they're into CrossFit. That's (laughs) (laughs) probably true. (laughs) 
Okay. But, speaking but of speaking of states, like, speaking of states, speaking of states, I think one of the other things this movie plays fast and loose with, and I actually find this mildly disturbing, is the whole Russia Soviet Union thing. So again, this movie starts in 1995. Now, for those of you too young to remember this, the Cold War was <laughs> over at that point. Okay, the Soviet the wall Union, had come down. The wall had come down. The Soviet Union had broken up in 1991. People might not even know what we mean by the wall has come down. Right, the Berlin Wall had come down. So, like, <laughs> you know, like the Americans, which again, there's an element of that in this movie. At least the Americans took place in the early 80s when the Soviets are the big bad. And you kind of understand that that Russia inherits a lot of the sort of big bad Soviet infrastructure, but. I have to say the film doesn't make any effort whatsoever to explain why the Russian Secret Service wants the things that it wants. And it's like the film sort of oddly is just trying to blur those two entities together and like hopefully ha- like do some hand waving and that the audience just doesn't question it. But Russia in 1995 was probably at its weakest point in its modern history. And so the idea that they were going to pull anything like this off is unlikely. And then, of course, we don't know what the relationship is between Drakov and and Russia after that. We also don't know what Alexei is thinking. Like, Alexei in this movie, after the 1995 Ohio operation, while he's in prison, has Karl Marx tattooed on his knuckles, which, I'm sorry, makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Because whatever you think of post-Soviet Russia, the one thing it wasn't was communist. Well, it, it, yeah. It did give me an idea for my next tattoo, of course. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah we're gonna do a little segue into me bitching about capitalism yes here. fair enough because this movie is ideologically pretty empty yeah right and i also say this as someone who grew up during the twilight of the cold war right by the time we get to 80s i do think it seemed pretty on the ground for like regular people the the threat of the communism had kind of like well, I don't okay, think it was by, as real. Okay, as... by the the mid eighties, yes. I will agree with you. The early eighties were pretty peak. Oh no, war, the early eighties and yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. That's sure. evil empire days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's evil empire days. But I remember being like, "Wow, like, are we really scared of these people? And why yeah. are we scared of them? Because yes. there, those cracks had begun to show. Right. Boris Yeltsin, like, you know, uh, can't come up. They got the uh, Mikhail uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> Already, the collapse of the TVA yeah, yeah. is leading to, 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 to variants of multiverses. Yeah, Mikhail Brishnikov, what a, what a Soviet leader he was. <laughs> <laughs> and then he married Carrie Bradshaw. No, sorry, go ahead. I did have a thought that this was maybe sort of an unintentional satire of the emptiness of Cold War ideology. But mostly, I think it is almost, <laughs> it's a comment on how millennials don't even really know what communism is. That No, that's <laughs> what I honestly find disturbing. Like, it, it, to some extent, like, we and we've seen this now in political discourse where, like, you know, the Democratic Party is accused of, like, being a socialist, communist, radical party. And I'm sorry, as someone who's read this shit, let me assure you that Whatever you think about the Democratic Party moving leftward, it's not a communist no. party under please, any circumstances. Please, everyone, no. I wish that it was. Like, and, well, I don't, but that's a whole separate conversation. But more no, importantly, I, mean, it, I will. I will say what I wish is that that some of their I, some of the Democratic Party's ideas were as radical as they're painted out to be, mm-hmm. right? Like, or even as as socialist as they're painted out to be. We have two neoliberal parties, one of which is like leaning in towards. The GOP is Fascism. no longer a neoliberal party. Yeah, I was going to say, they're, yeah. they're, one of which is tilting rapidly into, yeah. you know, the, so the way national just, socialism. But but to get back to Black Widow, I think this is what bothers me about it. Like, one of the things I liked about the X-Men, particularly like the X-Men first class movies, is that they actually got their history pretty accurate. Like, the first movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis actually has all the right details about the Cuban Missile Crisis. They, they actually took that seriously. This MCU film is not taking seriously the idea that the Soviets used to be the enemy and then it was Russia in the 90s and so forth. And and I have to admit, as, I guess as an IR scholar, I'm offended by the lack of seriousness on that point. Uh, like but, I said, the Karl Marx tattoo made me laugh. <laughs> I literally LOL. Yeah. And to start my entry into cultural studies talk, mm-hmm. I think what it shows is that I, I think people today think of um, ideologies as like a kind of fandom. Oh, like, I I love this thing. And so I'm going to, you know, like, part, we don't have parties. We have fan clubs. We stand Marx. We stand Marx. Oh, right? I, like, that's as, as well as we stand Ronald Reagan. You're like, there's, it's right, not a left, is, right 
thing. Yeah, no, that pisses me off even more. So yes, yes, that's fair enough. But but yes, but this leads speaking to the- of Karl Marx, Dan. Well, Anna. Yes, Dan. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? Dan. Yes. I again found myself thinking of the film as itself a cultural product of late capitalism while I was watching it. Yes. And I was thinking, if you showed this movie Mm -hmm. and Tomorrow War to an alien or, let us say, a German immigre to Los Angeles... (laughs) 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 Really, it's it's potato-potato at this point. Keep going. Yes. I am not sure that they would see the difference. Mm -hmm. Like, they are both big, dumb movies on some level. Yeah. And... That made me think about what I was saying about the Tomorrow War and it being kind of empty cultural calories. And this made me think, as as, as it does, does, as one does, of Theodore Adorno, who it was a big hero of mine in graduate school. He is a world-class grump. <laughs> um, he hated everything, basically. Do not read him if you think, let's see, if you want to enjoy some things, don't read him. <laughs> because... He will make culture feel unenjoyable because he's he has his one of the things he said actually that I I still find valuable. This is a digression, excuse me, but I actually would sort of enjoy to hear what you think of this, Dan. Okay, but he he criticized the work leisure dichotomy, the work life okay sort of structure because he pointed out that if we think of those as two different realms, mm-hmm. work becomes monotonous and fun becomes ridiculous. That the ideal should be mm-hmm. that we imbue our work with joy mm-hmm. and that it is pleasurable. Right. And that our leisure time activities are not necessarily frivolous. Like They have some virtue to them, if it were. Yes. And I think that's a really that's, cool insight. I remain like I'm an academic, a fan of which, that insight. I, as an academic, I can endorse that because like, I do find joy in my work. So I, I, I'm enthusiastic about that concept, actually. But he hated popular culture. He really hated popular culture. <laughs> oh, man, he would have hated the MCU. And he would have, it would have, like, what's the line in Hannah's Sisters and Max von Sendow? He's like, if Jesus came back, he would never have stopped throwing up. Yes. <laughs> this is Theodore Dorno and the MCU. Yeah. In part because what he criticized popular culture for was that it's all the same, basically. Mm. And that it, we develop these patterns of entertainment that mm. require no thought from anyone involved. They are mere consumer products. It's actually a little bit what I was saying about Tomorrow War. Yeah. And I thought of it in particular regards to MCU because he also points out that that this cultural consumption does become itself a kind of work because we're sort of trained to keep up with it. Like that we we can't extricate ourselves from the universe of this entertainment. Mm -hmm. And he has this quote that I'm going to read which he was just describing movies in general, but I Mm -hmm. think this sounds a lot like the MCU. Mm -hmm. Especially if you think of, like we were saying earlier, the inside jokes and references and Easter eggs. Right. Okay. I will not read a German accent. (laughs) Thank you. Movies are so designed that quickness, powers of observation, and experience are all undeniably needed to apprehend them all. Yet, sustained thought is out of the question if the spectator is not to miss the relentless rush of facts. Even though the effort required for his response is semi-automatic, no scope is left for the imagination. Those who are so absorbed by the world of the movie, its images, gestures, and words, they are unable to supply what really makes it a world, which he means imagination. And they do not have to dwell on particular points of its mechanics during a screening. All the other films and products of the entertainment industry which they have seen have taught them what to expect. They react automatically. I, he's a he's a grump. Yeah, yeah. I'm just I saying mean, he's like a, he's a grump. I don't think he's wrong here. I think like I think this wrong. is. I, I, I think he's right about. Let me this way. I think I agree with you. That criticism can be applied very well to Black Widow. I don't think it applies well to the best that is pop culture. I guess would be the way to put it. Could you pry him out of his grumpiness? Yeah. You might get Theodore Adorno to agree with you because you know his definition of art is just really strict, yeah. right? He believes, you know, art is a interactive thing. Like, you have to supply your own imagination. It's not just, like, a passive consuming. But, like, even in the... Like, there's stuff... And that- I, think, I think that is actually true. I do believe that the best art 
No, the best art awakens something inside us. Yes, but and I, makes us think. It makes us think beyond the movie itself or beyond the thing itself. Right. And I guess like my we point think is, about how to apply that to our lives. We think about yeah. you know the, the struggles that we have. But I guess my point it's is it's not just we, passive consumer. But we have talked about things even in this podcast that I think would qualify as art, even as Adorno talks about it. Like I don't think Adorno. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, sure, sure, so sure. That's, that's all I'm saying. But it does apply to Black. Oh, Lord, I, I mean, I think art. actually, I think he was such a fucking snob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think that it might take him like? We might have to prime a little bit. Although, again, again, he wrote a whole book about horoscopes. So really? he had a sense of humor. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. He wrote a whole book. He read the Los Angeles Times horoscopes for a year. <laughs> That's actually pretty clever as an idea. Yeah. Oh, he, I mean, if people aren't familiar with his work, he's actually super readable. Mm. Like, okay. for a, you know, cultural Marxist German immigre critic... I find I, well. Okay, this is on the scale of the, the scale of MCU to graduate school. <laughs> you might not be that readable. That's a good course title, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, like I said, he would think this is bad. I think I agree with you that there is. This what a fascinating thing to be arguing about. Mm-hmm. I do think there are MCU movies that f- would approach his definition of art right. in that sense of making you think beyond the thing itself mm-hmm. in that thing having an impact on the way you see the world yes but not yes. many of them and definitely not black widow i would agree with that correct yes anna i like using the microphone for this part. i can try that too okay uh, Dan, I, yeah. I hear things i hear things bouncing off the walls mm-hmm. do you know what that is i believe it's a debris field it is a debris field. Dan, this is where we talk about, you know, what we haven't talked about already. And we've talked about a lot. So yes. I am curious. What else? So, okay. First of all, I, we have not really said this throughout the entire podcast, but I want to stress it. Like, I, the film is more enjoyable than we are making it out to be because the problem is, <laughs> because the problem is, is that it doesn't quite, like, as I said, the IR and capitalism components of it are not good. That said, you know what is good in this film? Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh oh, yeah. is fucking amazing in this film. And, like, it, it just steals every scene she's in and is just incredibly... It, it was just wonderful. And the best scenes in the movie are basically her and Scarlett Johansson playing off each other. Uh, my- I, I want to say that specifically... Natasha does not have people take the piss out of her very much. Yeah. Like in the other movies. Right. She's like the cool, collected, always the one having the joke, not the one yes. like being joked upon. Mm-hmm. And Yelena is the perfect little sister, like, you know, yeah. piping up. Like and, and my favorite like finding the flaws. My favorite running <laughs> gag is where she makes fun of Natasha for the pose. Like when oh, she does the superhero man. landing and like and then you know you flip your hair how you know, why you do that. What it which is the purpose of this? Is, is, is a pose. You think where, everyone where, is know. looking at you, you know, like and, and then she actually does it at one point during the action. He's like, Ugh, this, that was revolting or something. Like she like yeah. she still can't go for it. I did like the Nirvana cover song during mm-hmm. the opening credits. I thought that was that was well done. One of the things that I think it, towards the 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 climax of the film that I actually again might have been a small gender component, but I liked it, is you see a lot of women holding hands in this yeah. movie, which was there's not a lot of subtlety in this film, but that was a little nice subtle point, and I kind of liked that. And then the last thing I would say, and I still don't understand this, which is the movie you you see Ross and his team coming. Natasha is about to talk to them. The music builds, and then we just cut forward two weeks. And I still don't understand why you don't see that conversation. That struck me as a relatively important moment where presumably Natasha would use her wiles to to get Ross to do what she wanted him to do. Um, and indeed, Which I'm not even sure what that is at that point. I guess it's to let the widows go. To let the widows go, exactly. You know, And so I just sort of, I don't know why they didn't, shoot that scene or maybe it was implausible or something but like if you're gonna have ross's team come up why do that without then showing the conversation otherwise you don't need ross there at all that was that was the part that puzzled me if you're gonna do that have the actual conversation and then the last thing and i just have to ask who wins in a fight the widows or the dora milaja (laughs) i think they just be friends yeah oh fair it's a good answer i don't think they fight i think they'd be on the same side of everything anna what about you it's all about the ladies. Most of the thoughts that I have about this movie, to conclude, have to do with the fact that it is a cast of almost entirely made up of women and, and women in all of the central action roles. Mm-hmm. And I did find myself being sort of strangely moved by that. Mm-hmm. I noticed myself noticing it. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe that just says how rare it is, right? Like to see nothing but women doing all the fighting, not just like a female hero, yeah, but a woman fighting against other women. Right. And for men to be mostly excluded from that, except for the nameless, faceless soldiers, yeah. who I think it would have been cool if they had actually gendered them as women. <laughs> like, because <laughs> it would have been interesting, right? Like that even, I don't know, maybe people would have overinterpreted it, but it would have been interesting. Yeah. I also wanted to add anecdata, uh, which is, I mentioned, I think, in our Tomorrow War minisode, which should be out by now, mm-hmm. that at the movie theater where I saw Black Widow, the, there were two dude bros sitting next to me, like with gimme hats and very thick Texas accents. <laughs> and um, the, before the movie started, they were talking about how much they loved Tomorrow War, mm-hmm. which I noted. Yeah. And then after the movie, we're waiting for the Marvel you know, credit waiting for the after credit scene. Waiting for the after credit scene. They're chit chatting, and one of them says to another, "Pretty cool how there's a lot of female heroes, huh?" And the other guy goes, "Yeah." And I, I did not expect that, <laughs> and it made me think, "Wow!" Like, you know what? Good for the MCU, and like, and we talk just a lot about representation. Was wrong, <laughs> right? And we talk a lot about representation, and people who really care about representation get mocked mm. a lot. Yeah. It fucking makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, I thought of Adorno. (laughs) (laughs) Which made me realize that my very enjoyment of the quasi-feminist perspective of this movie was actually ensnaring me in capitalism again. Which, you know, is something to think about as I go home in my (laughs) capitalist life, living capitalism, because it's the air we breathe, the water we drink. On that note, (laughs) I think it's time to wrap up, Anna. I think so, too. We Not that any other system works. I understand that. I understand other ones have been tried. The best, this is a sucky one that also doesn't work, really. But works marginally better than some of the other ones. Yes. Yes. All right. As I was saying... (laughs) We hope you like the Tomorrow War episode. That was really fun for us. We're yes. looking for excuses to do others, not just to create content in this content producing universe, but because Dan and I enjoy talking to each other and gives us an excuse to talk to each That's other. That's true. And we also enjoy making fun of shit like, that we have to We enjoy it. making fun of shit and we enjoy, we enjoy, sometimes we enjoy bad movies, right. much to Theodore Adorno's chagrin. <laughs> Were he alive? True. Were he alive? He would yes. be chagrined. I'm telling you. Yeah, I can live with that. That's okay. So, Dan, you know, the thing is, we're going to do more of these minisodes, and we're thinking some of them will be patrons-only episodes. That is true. That is just one reason why you should become a patron. The other reasons... What are some other reasons, Dan? The other reasons are you will get early access to all of the uh, episodes, of course. There is some swag at the higher end of the, the patron levels. You also get access to the AMAs, which we do the first Saturday of every month. And you get access to the Discord community, uh, which is a lovely, lovely community of people warm, that like to caring on me. <laughs> it's a warm and caring community where we where relentlessly mock Dan. Dan. <laughs> Sounds great. But Anna, how might people become patrons? Well, they would go to our Patreon page, Dan, and that is patreon.com slash space the nation. All of our episodes, except for our very special patrons only episode, which was to celebrate having 100 patrons, mm-hmm. are available on that page. Mm-hmm. But you get them early if you're a patron. I think Dan mentioned that. Yes. And you get access to a spreadsheet that we created, very high tech very sophisticated audience interaction uh, where you get to suggest things that we might do in the future. We said before, we actually have the year planned out. Pretty much. But, you know, like things change. One of the reasons why I haven't posted it is because I feel like I want to retain some ability to change on a dime. And which we might do, frankly, because we've, we've yeah, got some, we, could, we have some surprises in store for people. I think it would be We do have say. some planned surprises yes. in store. Yeah. I will add that you know, if you don't want to become a patron, but you like the show, mm-hmm. you can rate and review us wherever it is you get your podcast, and that would mean just as much to us. And rate us kindly. Don't shit talk about me. You can shit talk about Dan, mm. not me. Oh, oh, But really? if you really okay. want to shit talk about Dan, they should join the Discord. Yeah, that you have to which you need to do. Be a patron. Do, to be a patron to do it. Anyway, yeah. All right. Okay. All right, Dan. This was very fun. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed speaking, and keep this channel open for more. <laughs>